Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, stay in your lane. Do cities have a role in combating climate change, or should they leave the heavy lifting to senior levels of government? Plus, as more Canadians work from home, should we consider converting offices into housing? And BC introduced the carbon tax in 2008 to put a price on burning fossil fuels. Fifteen years later, does it actually work? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. First, let's talk about the City of Vancouver's Climate Emergency Action Plan. Now, originally, it was created in 2020. It was to provide a roadmap to cutting pollution by 50% uh, percent by 2030. Uh, recently, uh, Councillor Christine Boyle sounded the alarm on the critical underfunding of the Climate Emergency Action Plan. And today, the City of Vancouver staff were expected to present an annual update uh, to Council on the CEAP plan. And uh, she, uh, Christine Boyle joins me now to talk a little bit about the plan and some of her concerns. Of course, uh, Ms. Boyle is a one-city Vancouver, Vancouver City Councillor. Uh, Christine, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on. So walk me through, what are the shortcomings in your mind uh, with this plan, with, this, with the majority, the ABC majority? What are the shortcomings that you see moving forward? Sure, absolutely. So first, I think it's worth just remembering that Vancouver residents are already feeling the impacts of climate change. More than 100 Vancouverites died in the heat dome in 2021. We're seeing floods and storms and smoke. So the impacts are are here. Um, As you said, one of the challenges is that our climate plan is underfunded. um, And the types of investments that we need to make in order to get back on track to meet our targets are fortunately investments that also have huge benefits for health and safety and livability for Vancouver. They're, uh, they're, they're changes to make our roads safer for pedestrians and people on bikes. They're improvements to buildings that make the air cleaner, that make them more resilient uh, with cooling during heat events. So a a lot of important investments that really have huge benefits aside from reducing carbon emissions, climate emissions, which are important, um, but also that get to uh, health and well-being for for all of us. Let me ask you a broad question before we can go some, into some of the specifics that you talked about, about there in regards to buildings, in regards to livability, and, and, and even just the heat wave you talked about. Should local government be in the business of fighting climate change? I think it's a responsibility for all of us at every level. You know, we, we have been hearing for years and years that each of us should do our own little part um, and... The same is true of local government. We should do the things in our jurisdiction. And actually, buildings and transportation are the biggest local sources of carbon pollution. And those are squarely in local government jurisdiction. Um, But what we heard from staff very clearly today, too, is that the city uh, won't hit our targets without increased action at the provincial and federal level, too. And fortunately, um, we have governments at every level who are taking this crisis Seriously, and all of us need to do more. But when you talk when you talk about uh, building codes, let's just ju- talk about that for a second. There is a role, obviously, the city can play, but the building code is provincial, is it not? And the provincial government should be leading in that. When you look at transportation, um, the provincial government's going to have a lot to say in regards to that. The federal government will have a lot to do and a lot to say in regards to emissions from. Uh, those vehicles. If you wish to buy an electric vehicle, let's say, uh, you're going to get a rebate from the provincial government and potentially from the federal government as well, once again, senior levels of government. 
Uh, yeah, it... totally great, great questions, and and all of these are examples of where we each have a role to play. So, so what is the role of the city instance, specifically? Like, I'm I'm trying to understand what yes. is the role of the city specifically. Like, what specific things that you, do you think you can do that can have a significant impact on the issue of the fight against climate change? Great question. So, one of the city's key levers in terms of transportation is around. Uh, road space. So we can, for instance, make changes uh, that give bus buses priority um, or build uh, bus bulges that make buses faster and more efficient. We want to make it faster and easier for people to choose to take the bus to get around um, or to choose to walk or uh, or ride a bicycle. And there are important changes that we make to how our roads are designed that make that safer and faster for people. Those are squarely about road space and design and are are really local government issues. Even on electric vehicles, you spoke to federal incentives about what's being purchased. One of the pieces of our climate emergency action plan is um, building up the availability of electric vehicle chargers so that more people uh, feel confident and comfortable switching to an electric vehicle because they know they could charge it, particularly renters who can't mm-hmm. don't have a place to install their, their own charger. A, a build out of a public charging system is an important piece of uh, helping people switch over. Uh, do, was the parking tax that, uh, that, that didn't move forward, was that part of the, the climate action plan number one? And my second question to you, do you think the, the paper cup fee that is there now, is that part of the climate action plan and do you believe it should stay? The, the cup fee isn't part of the climate action plan. Um, the parking permit program was uh, and the fact that it didn't pass is, is just one of the reasons that we have a funding gap. So it's up to this council now to uh, to put our heads together and figure out um, h- how else we cover that gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't know, I can't speak to what revenue mechanisms ABC might uh, accept, but um, that's the work ahead and I'm certainly um, very happy to sit down with them and, and try to figure out how we get there. Uh, the other thing that's important to name is that there are regulatory moves policy changes that are low cost that we can be uh, committing to that will make a big difference too. So some of the building policy work uh, falls into that bucket. It, it's not a high cost, um, but it uh, uh, there are changes that we can make as a council, make as a city that really will make a big difference in terms of um, cleaner air and reducing carbon pollution. My final question to you, and I, you brought up the issue of, of the heat wave and 100 uh, Vancouverites dying, I think it was 600 province-wide. And I've, I've had uh, former uh, New West councillor, now Mayor Patrick Johnson, on talking about cooling centres, which I think is a, a great idea when using our community centres for cooling centres for, for seniors and those who need it, particularly those who live in uh, condominiums and apartments. Uh, and many of those things that city city does well uh, and then you look at the bike lanes, certainly promoting that. I know the Stanley Park is, is, is one that's in dispute at the moment. But shouldn't, be, shouldn't that be the focus where you actually have some control and you provide a valuable service for local residents that's practical and pragmatic rather than worrying about, as I've said, some of these other big, bigger issues that parking tax specifically, I think, not that that's what got ABC elected, but there certainly seems to be a mood in this city right now that wants City Hall to be a lot more practical and pragmatic rather than looking at these much bigger 
existential challenges which should be left predominantly to senior levels of government. Do you feel like you're, you're working uphill here in, in regards to where the public's mood is? I absolutely agree that we need to be looking at um, tangible changes that make a difference in people's lives. And those examples around active transportation um, and uh, and making cooling spaces in our public buildings are big parts of our climate emergency action plan. We've been working to retrofit public buildings in the city of Vancouver to have them available as cooling spaces. Um, and we've been investing in increased public transportation. We need to do a lot more of that, I will say. Uh, I'm sure this won't be a surprise to you. I was incredibly disappointed by the decision to spend a lot of public money ripping out a bike lane. That's not... Um, that's Climate leaders don't work about bike lanes, and I think ABC will have a lot of work to do to rebuild some public trust on this file uh, after that decision. The, the challenge is funding these types of investments, both on the building side, making our public buildings places of refuge, and building safe, active transportation routes. Um, we need to figure out how we fund that work because it is important. It, it makes our streets and our buildings safer for more people. Yeah. Uh, it, it makes a real difference, and that's absolutely where my focus continues to be. Christine, thank you for your time today. Enjoyed our conversation. We'll, we'll do it again some other time. Happy to come back again. Thanks. The Heppel Farm in Surrey. Now, it's an 89-hectare uh, field at 192nd Street and 36th Avenue. Uh, and uh, it has uh, been uh, leased by the Heppel family for the last 50 years. It produces almost between 30 and 50 million servings of vegetable vegetables each year. Uh, Surrey Council uh, announced uh, just recently that it's supporting the agricultural future of that large parcel of highly fertile land. As we said before, uh, the government, uh, the worry is that the government, the federal government, uh, which owns the land and has leased it for two-thirds of it to the Apples, um, it has declared it as a surplus and wants to divest it. The worry is that, of course, it ends up in somebody else's hands and it doesn't remain uh, as farmland and continues to be farmed by the Apple family. Joining us now is Tyler Heppel. He's a production manager at Heppel's Potatoes in Surrey. Tyler, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jazz. So walk me through in regards to, uh, is this an endorsement, I guess, at the end of the day from Surrey Council uh, in regards to what you've been fighting for? Yeah, it's a very important endorsement. Um, you know, they we had our ALC hearing last month, and we're still waiting to hear back from the ALC if this is going in the ALR. And for us to hear that the council and the city of Surrey uh, supports this is huge and it just shows us that we have our community support and now we have our city support in keeping this land in agriculture. Mm-hmm. And uh, and just to confirm, if it does stay that way, that means in the Agricultural Land Reserve, you, your family will continue to farm the way it does already? We will. Um, however, federal government isn't bound by the ALR laws. So while it is a great defense um, and a nice uh, it's just great to have an ALR. We need to continue to fight to get a covenant put on the land that it's going to stay in agriculture because there's a lot of different ways that it can still be developed as it is federally owned. And just walk me through this. There's been three local First Nations communities, Katsi, Kwantlen, and Semiamu, uh, that have expressed objections to putting the land in the ALR. Uh, have they expressed why? No, they haven't. Um, and uh, they're just in talks with the federal government, so we're not really privy 
to that. Um, we're we're just really farmers, so we just want we just want to keep this land in, in farming, um, and we just hope that through those chats, food security is at the top of the list and and kept in mind. So, mm-hmm. do you is there any concern over the fact that because of obviously over uh, overarching concerns by uh, members of the Kwantlen, Semi-Amorkatsi, First Nations, that this may be a lot more complex uh, than um, uh, than you had hoped? For sure. I, I, I think, like, we, we don't know what we don't know, right? And we don't know those discussions that are happening behind closed doors in Ottawa, but our hope is just that uh, in Ottawa they hear that people in British Columbia and Western Canada here are really passionate about this thing in food security because and, and in agriculture because we understand how important it is um, to feed Canadians here and at a time when we're relying on uh, California product and just to look at the long-term ramifications of losing this land. Uh, that specific land where your family has farmed, explain to me um, why it is, and rare is not the right word, but it is actually very productive, uh, that soil. And so you obviously has a, has a very vibrant farming community, but it wasn't at one point that specific land, but it, it, it's actually unique, is it not? It is unique, yeah. It's like they call it a little piece of California here in British Columbia, but we actually have water here in British Columbia. Um, so 50 years ago, my grandpa turned it into from marginal land into very productive land. Um, by using some regenerative farming practices to make the soil very productive, and then we added in irrigation. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's the earliest farmland in all of Canada planted. You know, we're getting our seed ready. There's a window possibly next week where we might even be planting it. So it produces the first potatoes, carrots, and cabbage in all of Canada. And that's really unique. And especially even during the summer months when it's raining and none of the other farmers can get into their field. Um, this field is relied upon to keep that constant supply to the grocery stores so that the big resellers don't have to go back to California. So it kind of gives the, um, the opportunity for a bunch of other farmers to stay in the farming game in the, the months of May, June, and July. Have you thought about uh, meeting with uh, with the Katsi, the, the Samiamu, uh, and the Kwantlen at all in regards to if there's, there are sort of overarching similarities and you can talk about uh, moving forward together on this, or do you think their their conditions may be separate from 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 what you were hoping to do? Yeah, I, I I mean I'm I'm sure they also really value agriculture and and um, the good that that comes from the land. But right now, I think they need to work things out with the federal government, and that's not really our place here. Um, we're just wanting to make sure that the voices of of the people are heard, and just kind of just sharing the information. I think a lot of people don't realize how important this one, you know, small piece of property is in the um, food security puzzle here in British Columbia. And finally, just want to confirm, so when do you expect to hear from uh, the ALC? We expect to hear from them sometime in March. In March. And th- and that, of course, would very much bolster your case, I think, uh, significantly yes. as well. Tyler, thank you for your time. Thank you, Jazz. This week, uh, I've uh, been reading a few articles uh, in the uh, paper and different websites on office conversions. Uh, Financial Times yesterday at London uh, did a lengthy piece uh, on uh, converting um, offices into condominiums. Uh, it's They use a very boring word called adaptive reuse, but really is converting offices into condominiums. And as I was looking around, uh, communities like Calgary, 
uh, Toronto are also increasingly doing the same. Uh, and when you dig a little deeper, uh, the National Apartment Association in the United States said that 32,000 apartments have been created since 2020 as a result of these conversions. And they said there was a record high in 2021 of 20,000 of them, which included converted 7,400 offices into apartments, 3,400 factories, and over 2,800 hotels. So can that be done in Vancouver? Well, some would argue it has already been done to a certain degree, uh, but can we do it in a much bigger mass scale? Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about talking about converting office towers into uh, condos here in Vancouver is Michael Geller, president of the Geller Group. He's an architect, planner, and a real estate consultant as well. Michael, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jazz. So as I was reading all of this, you know, and the argument has been, look, a lot of folks aren't returning back to the traditional office. They want to work from home. There's lots of space out there, a lot of offices that are underused. Uh, do you see something like this in Vancouver uh, uh, gaining any traction? Well, as you correctly pointed out, there have already been some interesting examples in Vancouver. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, the West Coast Transmission Building, that building that everybody drives by on uh, Georgia Street that's hanging from cables, uh, 18 years ago, that got converted to housing. The other building that many people will know is the Electra. Remember the old BC Hydro Building at uh, Burrard Nelson? Yes. That's now being converted in, into housing. So we do have some examples, high profile, and quite a lot of other examples as well. But... And it's definitely uh, going to happen. But I don't think it's as hot a topic here as it is in many American cities or cities like Calgary and Montreal, because we don't have the same high vacancy rate in offices, even after COVID, as those cities have. Calgary has, at one point, over 25% of its office space was empty. And that was that because of oil and gas, I guess, taking a hard hit at one point? Very much so. Mm -hmm. Very much so. The other thing is, in many of these cities, there's a desire to convert the offices into housing because these are areas of the downtown that are quite dead. I mean, Calgary does not have as much housing in its downtown as, say, Vancouver. And so the the city government is actually providing subsidies to encourage this, just to liven up the downtown. I did check, Jazz, the recent Urban Development Institute luncheon was held uh, last month, Mm -hmm. and they were looking at all the different markets, office, industrial, housing, and uh, it is interesting that this was not even mentioned as a topic. Uh, There were different views in terms of whether the office market is going to stay as healthy as it was in years gone by. And uh, many of the people still think, uh, still think that there is going to be a continued demand for offices here. Even if there wasn't that demand, and, 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 and I, I don't disagree with you, because when you look at you know uh, companies like Amazon still wanting to expand to this city, we have a growing tech industry in many ways uh, clustered in and around uh, downtown. But let's just say if we didn't, is it just too expensive to make to do these conversions today? And I know you gave me examples like the one on Burrard with the BC Hydro building, which I drive by every day. But uh, is it just too expensive to, to as well in regards to these conversions? 
it, it, it is it's not always too expensive. Uh, it very much depends on the building. Uh, one of the things anybody who's been in an office building knows that oftentimes what we call the floor plate, the sides of the office, the space between the windows and the elevators is often much greater than it might be in a typical apartment. So that could be a factor in whether or not a building lends itself to conversion. But there's no doubt that there are a lot of buildings that do lend themselves. In my personal view, unlike some of the people who are building and leasing offices, is that there is going to be a decline in the demand for office space. And in some of those older buildings, they often talk about Class A, Class B, Class C. The Class B and Class C buildings, I think it it is feasible to see them converted, and not just to condominiums. I think it could be very feasible to convert them to housing, both affordable but even luxury housing as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, why can they do this in, I think the Financial Times was focusing on development in New York, which is not a cheap market. Why can they do it there and not here? Well, because they have more empty, older office buildings than we do. But again, I don't think we should assume that this will not happen. I think there's already uh, a number of conversions uh, uh, being being contemplated. But but as I say, part of it is because we do have a reasonable mix of housing, and we don't have that many buildings that are completely empty. But it is a very hot topic. You know, when you first mentioned it to me, I was reminded that the Urban Land Institute, which is a big organization of real estate developers in the states, in one of the issues last fall, there's a whole article that I have in front of me, how to make office to residential conversions work. And it runs through a series of criteria. One interesting thing that people may not appreciate, Jazz, is office buildings often have what we call post-tension floors. In other words, they don't have as many columns because they run steel cables in the actual concrete slabs. Hmm. Well, if you're going to convert that to an apartment building with all the plumbing and kitchens and bathrooms, then you really need to be very careful. So sometimes... It's things like that. One other feature, which most apartment uh, livers can appreciate, is we're used to having balconies in our apartments, whereas most office buildings, in fact, virtually all, do not have balconies in outdoor spaces. Although I'm currently working with a Finnish company that manufactures glass panels that they put on balconies because they're looking at a system of actually adding balconies to existing buildings, in part contemplating the fact that these office buildings are being converted to housing. So it is, there are ingenious solutions that can be taken. I mean, I guess the, where the market is today, there's, I think there's, there, there's sort of no sacred cow. Everybody is looking at different different. Uh, ways to deal with this housing challenge that we have. My final question to you, and it's a bit off topic, but since I have you here, home sales in January, we're learning, were the lowest for the for the month 
since 2009, down 37% compared to a year ago. And that's according to the Canadian Real Estate Association. They announced those numbers uh, today. Uh, this is a, a, a partially an unfair question, uh, but I'm going to ask it anyway because I think it's, it's, it's one that's uh, near and dear to everybody. But your thoughts on when do you think – is 2023 going to be the year where we actually hit a bottom in real estate and after that things hopefully will turn around? Or do you still think it's going to take a while beyond 2023? Well, it's not an unfair question at all. In fact, at the UDI lunch – That was one of the topics of discussion. And uh, at that luncheon, it was suggested that it may well take until next year before we start to see a real resurgence of those condominium pre-sales. Now, that's different than just selling existing homes. I think what people want to see is our prices going to continue to drop because they certainly have been dropping over the last eight months. And our interest rates going to continue to rise. The consensus for for your listeners of all the twelve hundred people at the real estate conference is that by the a year from now, interest rates will be slightly lower than they are today, but not dramatically lower. And so by that, it means maybe around five percent rather than six and a half percent. In terms of prices, I think there is a sense that we are starting to to reach bottom. One of the real factors that many people are looking at is just the immigration numbers. I mean, Mm -hmm. there really is a significant number of people potentially coming here, and that puts pressure on the housing market. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think even I think you raise a good point. Even if you if there is a bit of a rate cut or a rate drop somewhere along the way in twenty twenty three, in many ways it's that's a psychological psychological thing. But I think you're also telling the market, okay, we've done all that we need to do, and we've gotten through the storm. Now things are slowly slowly going to get better, and I think perhaps that may spur greater interest in the market and people spending again and companies preparing and prepping and getting ready to build uh, their projects uh, as well. Uh, yeah. Mike, Michael, thank you for your time today. It's always my pleasure. Time now to catch up with our good friend uh, over at the legislature, Global BC's legislative reporter, Richard Zussman. Hello, Richard. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Hey, so we don't have a lot of time, but uh, I know uh, the, the budget will be announced uh, later this month. So there's usually uh, many interest groups uh, that are traveling to uh, to Victoria. And today the BC Chamber of Commerce was there uh, expressing some of their concerns in regards to doing business in BC, specifically under the NDP. What kind of things are they saying? Yeah, so one of the big things is relief around the employer's health tax. So this government brought in an employer's health tax so the British Columbians didn't have to pay MSP premiums. What the Chamber's asking for is an increase on the threshold. So businesses now in the province that have payrolls of less than $500,000 are exempt from paying into the employer's health tax. They want that exemption to be raised up to $1.5 million, which would mean a lot of these small and medium-sized businesses would be exempt from paying into the employer's health tax. They also want offsetting financial support. I spoke to a business today. Uh, you'll see them uh, on the news hour tonight uh, that says that one of the challenges are these compounding costs. So we have minimum wage that's gone up each of the last five years. Uh, we have paid sick days. And now we have a new statutory holiday, Reconciliation Day in September. Businesses are supportive of all of these things, but the cost of those things fall on their shoulders. and They want to see the province step to the plate and help offset 
some of those costs that are combined with inflation and other cost of living uh, increases that, that all businesses have experienced in this province. The minimum wage moving forward, it just goes up with, with the rate of inflation, does it not? Yeah, it does. And that's something that this government committed to. And businesses are largely supportive of that to ensure that their employees can pay for uh, their increased costs. But help from that is something that businesses are looking for more support from government to offset some of these increases. In regards to the employer health tax, the moving the um, the budget from five hundred thousand or less uh, for businesses, small businesses to one point five million, uh, is there any appetite for the government to move on this one? So it's something that they have looked at in the past, but as of now, not any clarity. But we know there is a budget coming up in a few weeks' time that is going to have support all over the place. There is a surplus the government's working with, and this could be one of those ways the NDP sends a message to business that says, look, we're listening to you. We understand these concerns. Maybe they don't get all the way to 1.5 million. Maybe they settle somewhere around 1 million. But this is one of those places where the NDP could send a message to the chambers, to boards of trade saying, look, we hear your concerns on this. And we know that small and medium sized businesses are the lifeblood of our economy. Uh, and they're also voters, Jazz, as politicians are always acutely aware. And so that could be a place where we see some support come budget in a few weeks. Uh, we got a couple minutes. So let's touch on a story you worked on for last night's news hour, which is this conversation about Vancouver uh, in the potential rotation for uh, Olympic host city. Uh, what's the chance of this happening? Not very high. It doesn't look like jazz. We had a compelling bid in 2030 uh, from Indigenous communities. The city of Vancouver, the city of Whistler, and the province said no. Uh, the idea of a blank check to make Vancouver a permanent host seems um, not palpable to governments. There would have to be a substantial uh, financial incentive from the IOC for a city like Vancouver to say, sure, we'll play host every eight years, every 16 years, every 12 years. As you know, in those sort of cycles, uh, political uh, winds change. We have new premiers. We have new governments. We have new mayors, new prime ministers. And with every level of government expected to put money in, it's hard to be consistent and reliable. So there would have to be some long-term stable funding from the Canadian Olympic Committee or the IOC to ensure that Vancouver becomes a permanent host. And I don't see the IOC or the COC providing that stability. And we know it's not coming from government. So I think for sports lovers, it sounds like a cool idea. It would be great to know that Vancouver, you know, hosts the games every 12 or 16 years. But I don't think it's going to be a reality, especially considering that such a strong bid on paper like 2030 couldn't get over the finish line uh, by the provincial government. Well, not, not only that, I think the, the Olympic Committee also has to show some uh, sort of transparency in regards to how they operate, years and years of uh, complaints in regards to corruption and transparency, yeah. uh, that they're not open enough, and that's and all they have to do with the costs going up with these Olympics year after year, they end up relying on basically you know totalitarian states or dictatorships, if you want to talk about Putin or Xi Jinping, and that's all you got left, or in the case of the World Cup, you end up going to, to Qatar, but that's all fossil fuel dollars. Like, democracies and particularly cities just don't have the deep pockets to do this stuff anymore. Not a chance. It's not happening. Now we're seeing a conversation now about Saudi Arabia getting into the conversation around another soccer World Cup. And I think 
There's frustration around the world about where big global sport has gone. And we know that these organizations like the IOC, like FIFA, rake in billions and billions of dollars on the back of TV revenues and support from fans and host cities and democracies like Canada, the United States and Europe want to see some of that back. So these organizations have a real problem, Jazz, as you hit on it. Trying to find a permanency with these countries could be a solution, but uh, like you said, there's not a lot of trust in the way that these organizations are run. Exactly. Richard, thanks for your time. Jazz, my pleasure as always. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about the carbon tax. Um, Many of you probably don't even think about it. Uh, Many of you may not know what I'm talking about, but every time you gas up, you pay the carbon tax. Uh, It's 11 cents a litre. It was introduced in 2008 by then Premier Gordon Campbell and his government. Um, It was the first sort of economy-wide tax on fossil fuels. Uh, And basically, what it promises to do is basically shift our usage over time of fossil fuels, put a a price on carbon. That's what it does. Uh, And it was world-leading in many cases. Very few uh, subnational economies uh, had introduced it at that time uh, around the world or economies. So it was a big deal. Now, at that time when it was introduced, the carbon tax started at $10 a ton, about $0.02 a litre. Today, it's $0.11 a litre. And uh, starting April 1st, it'll continue to escalate, rising to $15 per ton, which basically means uh, it'll keep going up to about $170 a ton. What's that mean? Well, by 2030, you would be paying about $0.40 a litre uh, in tax of that carbon tax. Now, it used to be revenue neutral. It's not anymore. Uh, But is it effective? Well, our next guest uh, has studied not only and looked at the carbon tax, but look at other um, measures that we have brought in in here in British Columbia in regards to dealing with climate change. Dr. Katya Rhodes is an assistant professor at the University of Victoria's School of Public Administration. Dr. Rhodes, thank you for joining us. Hi, my pleasure. Uh, first and foremost, your studying of the of the carbon tax and various other initiatives and policies that have been brought forward, uh, do you think that the tax has done what it was supposed to do, which is over the long term, A, change behavior, but more importantly, reduce emissions? That's a good question. Uh, I think the tax has done some of that um, change. Um, so the emissions uh, have been reduced and the emissions uh, in been reduced per capita since 2008. Um, but the most importantly, the carbon tax set the stage for um, very stringent climate action and for other policies at the federal level and in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. What What other policies do you think uh, that were introduced or having that are effective in regards to climate change in your mind, introduced here in British Columbia? So in the province, we have several so-called regulatory policies. These are the rules that governments set in place. And if the rules are not followed, then there is some sort of penalty associated with non-compliance. In BC, we have uh, a zero-emission vehicle mandate um, that requires car manufacturers to sell a higher percentage of electric vehicles on the market every year until we have 100% of electric vehicle sales by 2035. And we also have a low carbon fuel standard, which requires reducing carbon intensity of transportation fuels. So when you go to um, to the pump to get gasoline or diesel for your car, every time you put um, fuel in your car, you get more and more biofuels that are zero emission. Mm-hmm. Do, do you believe 
the totality of what you've just told me in regards to the, the, the programs that have been introduced and the carbon tax has been a net benefit for the environment and British Columbia is doing its part in your mind. Absolutely. I don't just believe that. The evidence shows that um, we are on the path to reduce emissions. We have reduced our emissions per capita. Um, the policies were initially set at a low level to give some time for businesses and people to adjust in terms of their behaviors and investments. But we are on the path to achieve uh, the 2030 and 2050 targets with the current policies in place. Um, because they are set to increase in stringency um, every day, every year. Uh, and the current level of the carbon tax matched with the federal pricing system and other supportive policies such as the low carbon fuel standard, zero emission vehicle sale, sales mandate, and the clean electricity uh, standard allow for um, climate success. Now, I was saying that it, when it was introduced uh, in 2008, it was about $0.02 cents a litre, about $10 a tonne. It, right now, uh, when British Columbians go to the pump, they pay about $0.11 cents per litre tax. Uh, but it is, as you say, going up significantly, $15 per tonne. So by 2030, it'll be almost $0.40 cents a litre tax on gasoline. Do you worry, uh, do you think elect, elected officials, officials should worry in regards to just... Uh, just the ability for taxpayers to pay that type of money when it comes to cost of living and inflation, everything else that's there. But to know that you're paying 40 cents a litre of that goes towards a carbon tax, never mind you know, paying a 17 cent TransLink tax on top of that, that there's only so much a, a consumer is willing to pay. Uh, do, you th- do you think that you can bring the public along or do you, you're looking at sort of a public revolt at some point going, this is just too expensive? That's a great question. Um, so absolutely, and I think that's the reason why carbon taxes are not set at the level that they should be at if we were to rely on carbon taxes only for climate policy. In reality, in order to achieve climate targets um, by 2030, the price should be at about $250 a ton, meaning uh, much more than $0.40 per litre um, by 2030. Um, so for that reason, governments rely on the supplementary policies such as regulations and flexible regulations that have the um, credit trading systems uh, for suppliers um, to reduce the, the cost of compliance with um, cl- climate policy. And taken together, these policies um, uh, actually uh, have a much higher price than the carbon tax alone. But they do reduce public opposition in a very um, successful way. And what do you say to the argument? And, and um, in advance, it's, you're not an elected official; you're an academic who studies this. But you know, some people are going to say, "Look, you got all these rules, you got all this tax, yet we're a subnational economy with five million people, roughly equal to one third the size of the city of New Delhi, and a country like India with one point four billion people, and uh, or one fourth the size of the city of Beijing, of another nation with about one point three, one point four billion people. That's forty percent of humanity. Those two countries alone. Why should we?" be taxing ourselves when at the end of the day those regions and many other countries with significant population like the United States, uh, Pakistan, Indonesia and collectively the EU that's where we should be focusing on not a small country like Canada, certainly not a small subnational economy like BC Yeah, that's a great question so we've reached the standard of living here in British Columbia, in Canada and uh, other most developed countries in the world using fossil fuels and uh, we polluted a lot, and now it's, uh, it's the time to pay for that pollution. 
Um, other countries uh, haven't reached uh, the same level of um, standard of living. So um, it's our job uh, in, in the developed countries to help um, the rest of the world transition at much lower cost. So by setting the example here in British Columbia, we help other provinces in Canada, we help the federal government implement effective climate policy and in addition climate policy accountability mechanisms that exist for here in British Columbia and now being replicated at the federal level. And we help all other developing countries give the transition stage and implement the technologies that are low emission or zero emission at a much lower cost. Do you think that the carbon tax should go go back to being revenue, revenue neutral in regards to the government? The money the government puts, uh, puts in, brings in, they return it in some capacity, whether it be through grants, whether it be through uh, for low-income funding. Do you think it should go back to being revenue neutral? Uh, the carbon tax used to be revenue neutral in British Columbia, and it u- used to be the kind of textbook type of carbon pricing policy uh, that boosts economic growth by reducing income taxes. However, it's really difficult to sell the revenue neutrality to people because people don't really understand how income taxes work. Um, it's really hard to track all the different components of um, income taxation. For this reason, it seems that um, public support is much higher when um, taxes are spent on directly on low-carbon um, investment projects uh, or any other initiatives that are more supported by the public and the industry. Mm-hmm. Dr. Rhodes, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for having me. The new University of Toronto research found some coffee drinkers may need to start putting up uh, boundaries when it comes to the caffeine that they consume. Perhaps rethink how much they are consuming uh, or they face an increased risk of kidney uh, dysfunction. Now, the study, which was published in January, said about half of the population has a genetic variant that means their body is slow at metabolizing caffeine. Uh, the lead author of that study is uh, Dr. Sarah Madavi. She's a clinical scientist at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Medicine. And as I said, she's the lead author of that study. Dr. Madavi, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on your show. W- was the, Were the findings surprising to you? Um, you know what? Uh, I had obviously some suspicions, uh, which is part of the reason why what led me to want to study this. But um, the the actual outcome was um, really remarkable. Uh, and in that, uh, we followed these individuals for over 16 years and to see those um, really clear uh, differences uh, between the two groups um, was, you know, not surprising, but just remarkable to actually to, to witness. Mm-hmm. So at its core, the study tells us that uh, people who drink more than three cups three cups of coffee a day and I guess are slow at metabolizing that coffee, they're at the risk of kidney dysfunction? Correct. Yeah, that's correct. How did you go about doing this study? Um, so, uh, you know, to just give you a little bit of a background, um, I have worked with the um, kidney disease population for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had heard of uh, uh, this marker uh, and its uh, outcomes that were uh, measured um, in risks of heart attack. So uh, there was a previous study that had showed uh, those individuals who were co- um, high consum- consumers of coffee um, that were uh, divided by, according to genotype, um, and as well as these uh, high consumption of coffee, uh, there was a, a clear difference 
in the risk of heart attacks. So those people who were the slow metabolizers were almost four times more likely to uh, have a heart attack when they were consuming large amounts of coffee. So, uh, and then there was also research that was showing uh, there is a risk of um, hypertension, so high blood pressure uh, in those individuals who are slow metabolizers. Um, and I just generally find coffee a very interesting um, topic to, to research uh, and, and, and learn about because it's, it's a very uh, common and frequent exposure. When we think about environmental exposures, um, you know, uh, there isn't very many single foods that a lot of people consume uh, in such large quantities um, with the exception of coffee. So, uh, you know, and people get passionate about it. You know, it's a ritual. Uh, there is so much that goes around it. So, so it's a very interesting beverage to study. Mm-hmm. And um, those were things that um, sort of led me to, to, to think about this. And otherwise, uh, you know, there is a lot of conflicting research about um, risk of coffee and kidney disease. Um, and um, so I just had a bit of a hunch that uh, part of the reason a lot of times where there's inconsistency in medicine and science uh, simply is because the populations that are being studied are genetically different. Um, and so that was my suspicion with it. Is it hard to guess whether somebody has this coffee gene? Yes, there's actually no real way to guess um, if you have this, um, uh, what we should call the coffee detoxifying gene, because the uh, the gene is expressed and the enzyme that cleans our blood uh, is in the liver. And there's no way to feel or sense um, how, how well it's, it's performing or functioning. Uh, now, I, a lot of times I talk about this topic, and obviously throughout the years as I've talked about my research, um, you know, people right away say, oh, you know what, I know I'm a slow metabolizer because if I drink coffee after, you know, 2 p.m., I can't go to bed. Yeah. Uh, or people will say, you know, I know I'm a fast metabolizer because I can have 10 cups of coffee a day and it doesn't affect me. I can take a nap right after. So um, that is actually a different genotype. So the the sensation of the effects, the neurological outcomes, which is the anxiety, the jitteriness, the lack of sleep, um, or the sense of alertness, uh, those uh, uh, you know, neuro and psychological effects of caffeine uh, uh, are, are, are on a different uh, genotype, which is expressed in our, mostly in our brain. Uh, and it's, that gene is called the Adora gene. Uh, that is different than what happens in our liver, which is this uh, CYP1A2 gene. Um, and people can have any combination. So they could be a slow metabolizer, but really desensitized to coffee, which is really the worst combination, meaning that, you know, you can drink 10 cups of coffee and not feel it from a neurological perspective, uh, but your liver is really struggling to get rid of that caffeine buildup in your body. And, you know, so then that puts you at risk. But uh, I guess the flip side of it is that if you have that biological feedback in your brain because you sense and you're sensitive to coffee and your liver can get rid of it quickly, then those are uh, some lucky cards you've been uh, handed down from your parents. Um, but, yeah, so it could be, um, you know, a combination of things. But ultimately, just to answer your question, with regards to the toxicity effect of caffeine, there is no way for us to feel or sense uh, what our bodies are doing. So if someone says, look, I can have a coffee at five in the afternoon and I can still sleep very well, so I must be okay, that doesn't necessarily mean you may not have that gene. No, no, there's no way to tell because, yeah, exactly, because, 
different, different, different setups. And I, and I use a, a, a fun example because myself and my best friend are completely the opposite. Uh, so I'm sensitive to caffeine. Um, so if I have two cups of coffee, I can certainly feel it very strongly. But my liver is very efficient in getting rid of the caffeine. So I'm a fast metabolizer when it comes to detoxification, but I'm sensitive to the effect, the neurological effect. And my best friend is the opposite. She can drink 10 cups of coffee, go to bed, but her liver um, is really quite um, diminished in its ability to be able to uh, excrete that caffeine effectively. And just to give you an example of, you know, comparative. Mm -hmm. So for people who are slow metabolizers, you know, it's a ratio of one to four. So, um, you know, one cup of coffee, coffee for me would be equivalent to four cups of coffee. Um, for somebody who's a slow metabolizer. So oh. that's how the difference is, yeah. Uh, so based on your study and people listening to you right now, what should people do? Is it the old uh, adage of just, uh, you know, uh, be, be, there should be balance in your life. Don't drink too much. And if you want to have a cup of coffee, definitely have one. Uh, you have to balance all that out. Listening to you today, what, what, what kind of advice would you give people in regards to co- caffeine intake and coffee intake? Yeah, certainly. And and I think you bring up a really good point. So, um, you know, coffee is not the same as caffeine, even though uh, coffee is, uh, you know, the largest contributor to caffeine for most people. Um, they're not synonymous. Coffee is actually quite a complex beverage with um, uh, quite a number of uh, health protective um, uh, compounds in it, like plant phytochemicals that we call. Um, so it's not that coffee is bad. It's the caffeine component that is, um, you know, potentially toxic to our bodies after a certain limit. So what I advise people, uh, you know, you're correct, uh, you know, moderation, quote unquote, uh, could be uh, a way to go. But I think that term, uh, part of the issue with that term uh, for me is that people's definition of moderation is different from each other. So it's not really a good standard to go by. And, you know, being a scientist, I like to measure things. So, uh, you know, we talk about measuring coffee and caffeine in our study, more than three cups. Um, but this study was done uh, in Italy where, uh, you know, the, the participants were consuming espresso shops. And typically espresso shop um, would be equivalent to a very small cup of coffee's uh, caffeine content, which is about 100 milligram. Uh, but if we say coffee in moderation in Canada or in the U.S., uh, and, you know, people are kind of getting a venti cup at... Um, right, at Starbucks or, you know, a medium cup or a large cup at uh, Tim Hortons, they already would be getting um, 300 milligrams or more of caffeine in that one cup. Um, So, you know, yes, moderation is good if uh, we understand the amounts. Another option is to, um, you know, still enjoy the beverage but use decaffeinated coffee, and um, that should be... That should be fine as well. That may be the best way to go for someone like myself who does like his coffee and but does have to be a little careful. <laughs> Dr. Madavi, thank you yes. so much for your time. Really enjoyed our conversation. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.